name is Sandy Story, and our scripture reading today is found in Ezra 8, and it's verses 21 through 36. And you can find that in the Black Pew Bibles on page 395. And if you don't have a Bible or know someone who needs a Bible, feel free to take one as a gift from us. And will you stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word? Fasting and prayer for protection. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Avala, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored for God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. The priests were to guard the offerings. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priest, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offerings for the house of our God, that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out for them 650 talents of silver, and silver vessels worth 200 talents, and a 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth a 1,000 derricks, and two vessels of fine, bright bronze, as precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priest and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priest and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava, on the twelfth day of the first month, to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes along the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. And on the fourth day, within the house of the Lord, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Josabad the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who came, who came from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, Twelve bulls for all of Israel, ninety-six rams, 
77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors and to the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Sergey Marchenko. I'm one of the pastors here. Love is in the air. Or, or is it snow? It's one of, one of those. All right, so for a few weeks, we, we've been looking at the return of the Jewish exiles from Babylon. As we have uh, learned so far, it was uh, quite a remarkable time in the history of God's people time of renewal and restoration, we saw that the people finally returned to the land that God had promised to them. They have repopulated Jerusalem and towns around it. They rebuilt the temple, started offering sacrifices again. And so, so far, things are going pretty well. Now, fast forward 60 years after the completion of the temple in Ezra chapter 6, talked about it last week. Now this is almost 60 years later, and the people are in somewhat of a spiritual funk here. There's a decline that's happening here, and we'll talk about particular issues next week. But not everything is done yet. For example, the city hasn't been rebuilt yet. The walls are not rebuilt. People are not following the law of God. They don't teach the law of God yet. So there are some accomplishments that have been, have been made, and yet there's lots, lots of stuff that still needs to be done. So God raises another leader for this time. Now, we already saw Zerubbabel and Joshua the priest and uh, Haggai and Zechariah the prophets who were raised by God for a specific task. And now God is going to raise Nehemiah to rebuild the city. So that's a little bit later. And he's raising Ezra to teach the people the law. So we see that God raises a leader for every season to accomplish particular goals. It's a new king now who rules Persia 60 years later or so. Ezra is a priest by lineage and a scribe skilled in the law of God by passion. He gets the king's permission to lead another group of Jewish exiles home. So there's another new group, a next generation comes back to Jerusalem. What I'd like to focus on today is Ezra himself, this leader that God raises. Ezra is very important for the people of God. There's a tradition that credits Ezra with compiling the Old Testament. He was the scribe that put all these different books together and edited them. Probably not true, but he probably had something to do with it. Ezra is uh, some kind of a second Moses. In the Jewish religion, they look at Ezra as someone who has gathered people again, brought them out of Babylon and, and brought them back to Jerusalem and established the rule of God in this newly rebuilt city. And so he's an important person, and we're looking at him as an agent of renewal. Who does God use to bring renewal to a community? 
What kind of person can God use? What are the traits of that person's character that make him or her available to God to be used for restoration and renewal? This is a relevant question. I want to be an agent of renewal. I want to be a person that God uses. Don't you? Don't you want to be someone that that God will use to bring renewal and good change into your community? Maybe you're the only committed Christian in your house. And so how can you help your family discover a new life with God? How can you be that agent of change in your own house? Maybe you are concerned with all the things that you see happening in our community. And so maybe you're praying and thinking, how can God use me to bring reconciliation into my community? How can, good, how can God use us as a church to bring reconciliation into our community? And as our church moves into this new season, are you one of the people that God is using to bring renewal and healing to Chatham? Should you be? Do you want to be? Are you one of those people that God is using to bring renewal to our own church? And if not, what needs to change for you to be involved in that work of God? So our sermon today is about that. In a sentence, God uses particular people in His work of renewal. God uses particular people in His work of renewal. I'd like us to look at Ezra as an example of that. I'd like to look at specific commitments that shape the character and life of Ezra, an agent of God's renewal. There are three commitments that are made by Ezra. So we'll start with those and work through those. There are three commitments that Ezra made to God that made him a certain kind of person. And there's another commitment that we need to look at that Ezra did not make, but God made to him. So there are three commitments of Ezra's, and there's another commitment of God to Ezra. So we're looking at, number one, commitment to God's word. Number two, commitment to God's work. Number three, commitment to God's will. Those are all three Ezra's commitments. And then finally, we're going to look at commitment of God's hand. This is God's commitment to Ezra and to us. So that's our outline. Commitment to God's word, commitment to God's work, commitment to God's will, and commitment of God's hand. Ezra is described right away in our text as a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. He was good at studying and teaching the law. It's likely that he even used those skills at the Persian court, probably was a secretary or some sort of an office worker in the bureaucracy of Persia. And yet his passion was with the law of God, with the scriptures. This wasn't just a skill, it wasn't just a job. His mind, his heart, his life, his work were saturated with God's word. Look at Ezra 7, verse 10. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. 
So he set his heart to study the law, to do it, and then to teach it to others. He studied, he applied it to his own life, and then he taught it to others. One commentary puts it this way, Ezra is a model reformer. In that he taught what he taught he had first lived. And what he lived he had first made sure of in the scriptures. With study, conduct, and teaching put deliberately in this right order. Each of these was able to function properly at its best. Study was saved from unreality. Conduct from uncertainty and teaching from insincerity and shallowness. There's a connection there as these three aspects of his commitment to God's Word. He studied it for himself. He knew what the Scriptures said. He then applied it to his own life. He lived what he knew. And then he shared it with others. He taught it to others. And because of this pattern... Because of all these three parts fit together in this right order, he knew scriptures well, he applied them well, and then he taught them well. He learned it, he lived it, and he taught it. So let's look at these three aspects of his commitment to God's Word. First, Ezra set his heart to study the scriptures. I would imagine that he read it often, He studied it carefully. He memorized it, meditated on it. There was first-hand knowledge of what God said in His book. Now, as you know, we live in a time when Bible literacy is going away. And uh, sometimes you talk to someone who doesn't really know much about the Bible and is not familiar with biblical stories. I grew up without the Bible, so that, that is very familiar to me. When I became a, a believer, I just started reading the Bible. There was no Bible in my home when I was growing up. There was no scripture available to me to read. And so when I became a Christian, all of it was new to me. And I remember being at a Bible study and somebody was, was referencing a story in scripture of saying, Oh, those, you know, the three guys in the furnace, and then there was a fourth one. And I said, what are you talking about? I'd never heard that story. That's Daniel, right? Daniel's uh, friends who were in the furnace, and then God was there with them. And, and I, so, so they told me where that story was, and I read the story for the first time, and it was amazing. I'd never heard that story, but it's, it's such a cool story. So it was all new to me. And many people today are growing up in that same environment. They're learning for the first time when they become believers those old stories, especially from the Old Testament. There is definitely a cultural shift away from the biblical understanding of reality. Not only people are losing their understanding of what is in the Scriptures, but their understanding of the world is no longer shaped with these concepts. Now, I am not idealizing the past. Uh, Just because you know the scriptures and you know certain stories from the Bible doesn't mean you're actually living it, doesn't mean that you are seeing reality in that way. But there is something to be said for losing that knowledge. Today, not only our culture, but our church 
a Christian church, in the church fewer and fewer Christians read the Bible for themselves. What's even more alarming that many pastors have abandoned this expository model of preaching where every sermon is based directly on the text of Scripture. So there's a lot of topical preaching and not all of it is bad, but it does get you a step away from Scripture. I find there is a big difference between a typical Christian book published today and a typical Christian book that was published let's say, in the 18th century. You read some of those books and you realize that the authors were very familiar with the Scriptures. The allusions they make, the the examples they use, the illustrations they come up with, the references they make to, to the stories of the Old Testament are just all over the place. And today, not all, certainly there are very good books that are being written and published today, but many books are just much more shallow. There's not a depth of scriptural knowledge, probably because the authors themselves are not interacting with scripture on that deeper level as some of the people in the past. There seems to be um, in the church and in the literature a tangential connection with scripture, but not a, not a direct involvement, not a sort of this deep, saturated life in scriptures that comes out naturally in writing and, and in preaching. I knew a man in Chicago who was becoming part of our church and he wanted to teach an apologetics class at our church and he was very passionate about apologetics. He talked to me just a few weeks after he started attending, which wasn't unusual at our church to get people involved within weeks and, and sometimes having them teach something which sometimes created problems. But he came up to me and he said, I'd I'd just love to help other Christians know how to answer these difficult questions that we are often asked by unbelievers. He said, I have some materials I've developed. I'd love to teach a class on apologetics. And I said, let's let's meet and talk through it. I was trying to be careful. And and as we met, and he brought a bunch of notes that, that he had made for that class, and he shared with me some of the ideas that he wanted to teach, And I realized pretty quickly that some of the things he was saying were simply not biblical. They're just not biblical. I mean, they worked in an apologetics context because you can defend something through an argument that he used, but I thought the argument was just faulty. It was not biblical. For example, he said, well, we need to tell people that God doesn't send calamity, that God doesn't cause natural disasters uh, around us, and that's a good argument for God's love and God's care for us. The only problem with that argument is that it's just not biblical. You look at the scriptures, and God does use calamity, and God does use famine and pestilence and those kind of things. And unless you had read the scriptures, you probably wouldn't come to that conclusion. You'd probably try to defend God from a different angle. And so it was, a, it was an interesting conversation talking to someone who was passionate about Christianity, somebody who was passionate about helping other believers engage with unbelievers in a, in a rational, intellectual way, and yet who himself didn't know the scriptures. And so I showed him some of those passages. You go to Amos, and you go to Isaiah, and you go to Jeremiah, and it's all over the place. God is clearly in control of those kind of natural disasters. Now, what do we do with that? We need to accept it as truth, and yes, we need to defend that position but not in the way that my friend was defending it. 
So he never taught the class because he didn't know the scriptures. Secondly, Ezra set his heart to do what scripture says. Not only did he study and he understood what the scriptures taught, but he also set his heart to do, to obey what the Bible taught. It's not enough for us just to read the Bible and to know it. We must conform our lives to it. That's where our credibility comes from often in conversations with unbelievers or believers. If we teach someone else to follow the Bible and yet we do not follow the Bible ourselves, how important do you think people think it is to us? If I'm telling you to do something but I'm not myself doing that, it certainly doesn't seem to be all that urgent for you to start doing that if I'm not doing that. And so we need to learn it, yes, but we also need to live it. George Whitfield, the great leader of the first great awakening in, in here in America, but also in Britain, um, a man used by God, an agent of renewal, had a habit of reading the Bible on his knees. He read the Bible on his knees. That was just something he did. If he read the Bible, he would kneel before the Bible as he read it. That's a posture of obedience. It's a posture of humility. It's a posture of acceptance of God's Word. Of saying, I'm not only trying to learn what it says, but I am ready to obey what it says. I'm engaging with God on that level. I'm listening to what He's saying, but I'm ready to obey it joyfully and humbly. Now thirdly, Ezra set his heart to teach the Scriptures. So he studied it, he obeyed it himself, and now he set his heart to teach the Scriptures to others. He was not content just to know the Bible or to have the Bible affect his own life only. He wanted to teach it to others. And the whole reason for his move to Jerusalem was to teach the people of God the law of God. Over the decades spent in exile, the law was neglected and and the meaning of the law was lost and people were not obeying the law anymore. They've forgotten what God told them to do and how to live. So Ezra wanted to teach it to the people. Now, I, I often get convicted when I think about that because it's easy to focus on yourself and, and you think, well, I am going to read my Bible, so I'm going to create patterns in my own life where I am studying, I'm learning, I'm understanding what Scripture says. And then you say, well, I'm going to apply it to me, I'm going to be faithful, I'm going to be obedient to what the Scriptures tell me. And yet there's another step there. Am I now sharing that knowledge, sharing that experience with others? Where I am convicted is my own home, my children. Am I teaching them what I am learning and what I am applying? Or are they only observing me do that? Am I directly engaging with them and saying, this is what the Bible says, this is what I have learned, this is how it's affected my life, so now I want to pass it on to you. So my question to all of us this morning, and I am absolutely in that number, is my life, is your life, saturated with the Scriptures? I like the word saturated, because that means you're, you're soaking it all in, and it's, it's dripping off of you. 
It's just you, you are completely immersed in the Scriptures. Your world has now been shaped by the concepts and the teachings of the Scriptures. The way you see reality now conforms to the Bible. You're able to understand reality around you in terms that God has given you, in the categories that God has given you, like sin and redemption and grace and faith and law. Those are biblical categories. And they don't start affecting us unless we are immersed in the Scriptures. That's what you're reading. That's what you're thinking about. You're processing that. You're working through those things. You're putting them together. You're trying to reconcile various passages of Scripture. You're trying to read a particular book of the Bible and get into the world of that author. Try to understand what was happening. What did that words, those words mean to them in that setting? What do they mean to me now? And you are accepting what God is saying as true. You're starting to think of your world as defined and described by Scripture. So when something is happening, your filter is Scripture. You, you, the lens through which you see things is Scripture. You have God's perception of reality. Now, we know, especially through the postmodern critique and kind of a lot of, a lot of the things that have, have come to light in the last maybe 50 years where where many people are critiquing this understanding of being objective and saying, how can science be objective? We all have these narratives. We all come in with our biases. And I think that's very helpful to hear that. And yet, God has given us a filter, a lens through which to look at things. Yeah, of course I'm coming in with my biases. Of course, I can't understand reality on my own. But God has given me a way to do that. God is saying, embrace this world of the Scriptures. Submit yourself to that. Be saturated with it. And now look at the world through that lens. And so, yes, I can be frustrated with my own biases and my own narratives that I bring into reality, sure. But there's one narrative through which I can see even my own narratives. There's one story that defines how every other story needs to be understood. That's so helpful that God would do that to us and, and give, give a, a book like that available to us and say, read it and understand, giving us the ability to understand it, giving us a community to discuss it with. And so my question is, are you making use of that? And, okay, so maybe you're saying, we're, it's a Bible church, of course we're going to mention the Bible, we're going to tell people they need to read the Bible, yes, it sounds like we talk about it all the time. But it's one of those fundamental things that unless you do that, a bunch of other things just are not going to work. They're just, just not going to happen. And so Ezra, you see how he, he set his heart to study and to do it and to teach it. There is a fundamental commitment here that Ezra had made. He said, I am going to see the world through Scripture. I'm going to accept God's perspective on reality. I'm going to study it so I can understand it and I'm going to obey it so my life could conform to that and now I'm going to pass it on to others because it is so important to see the world in this light. So are you doing that? Very practical. Do you have patterns in your life where you are studying the scriptures? You are applying them? You are teaching them to others? Maybe it's your own children. Maybe it's your friends. 
Maybe it's your coworkers. Maybe it's a group of church that you lead. But are you passing on that knowledge and experience to others? I'll finish this point on this commitment to God's word with a quote from George Mueller. Many of you know George Mueller. He's a famous founder of orphanages in Bristol, England in the 1800s. Lived a long life was uh, greatly used by God. It is, it is hard to imagine that the problem of orphans in England would be resolved without George Mueller. It's amazing. I mean, it's over 10,000 orphans were affected directly by his work, by starting orphanages. Many more people were affected by the schools he started. Many of them, uh, those orphans attended so greatly used by God, and he himself credited his success and his ability to be used by God to his reading of the scriptures, very clearly. He says that many times in his journals, and if you read his biography, it comes out very clearly. So when he was 71 years old, 71, he spoke to younger believers. This is his advice after a, a long life of ministry and life with Christ. He says, this is to younger believers, but it applies to all of us, I think. He says, Now in brotherly love and affection, I would give a few hints to my younger fellow believers as to the way in which to keep our spiritual enjoyment. It is absolutely needful, in order that happiness in the Lord may continue, that the scriptures be regularly read. These are God's appointed means for the nourishment of the inner man. Consider it and ponder over it. Especially, we should read regularly through the scriptures, consecutively, and not pick out here and there a chapter. If we do, we remain spiritual dwarfs. I tell you so affectionately, For the first four years after my conversion, I made no progress because I neglected the Bible. But when I regularly read on through the whole with reference to my own heart and soul, I directly made progress. Then my peace and joy continued more and more. Now I have been doing this for 47 years. I have read through the whole Bible about a hundred times and I always find it fresh when I begin again. Thus, my peace and joy have increased more and more. That was his practice. He would just read through it. When he was done, he would just go back and start reading through it again. I don't think he had a schedule. I don't think he marked it off. He was just reading through it continuously. Now, this is him speaking at 71 years old, right? He lived to 92. He lived another long time. And in that time, he read the Bible another 100 times. So his Bible reading actually increased with age. He started reading it more. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a great encouragement to us. That someone who was so busy, tremendously busy, he was also a pastor preaching three times a week. I can't imagine just preaching three times a week. He also ran orphanages and was involved in missions and all sorts of things. Such a busy man such a man that was effectively used by God, committed himself, set his heart on reading and applying and teaching the Scriptures. 
So let this be an encouragement to us. If you're not reading the Bible, start doing that. If you're not reading enough, start doing that. If you have a tendency to pick and choose only passages that you agree with that you know are going to be encouraging to you, incorporate some of the other books into your diet. Read through the Bible. Study the passages carefully. Apply it to your own lives and pass it on to others. God uses people who are committed to his word. Now secondly, there's a commitment to God's work on Ezra's part. His second commitment was to God's work. Now as you read his story, there's a clear sense of Ezra's pursuit of the task that God has entrusted him with. It was not easy for him to navigate the Persian bureaucracy. I mean, to get the king's permission to move a whole group of people to Jerusalem was probably not easy. Probably a lot of papers to sign, probably a lot of people to see until you get to the king, and then convincing the king that he should be favorable to this endeavor. And then after that, gathering the people. I mean, remember, it wasn't easy to gather this whole new group to return to Jerusalem. He had to find specific people like Levites and temple servants that he was going to need once they got to Jerusalem. And then there's the journey. Four months he, was on, he spent on the way to Jerusalem, about a thousand miles with lots of potential for dangerous interactions with all sorts of people along the way. And yet he committed himself to God's work. He knew this is what God wanted him to do, and so he pursued it full-heartedly. He was steadfast in his commitment to God's work. Now here's where we need to ask ourselves, because that's going to apply to us, what is God's work? So if I am telling you today, you must be committed to God's work, and that is how God is going to use you to bring renewal, what is God's work? Now, quite simply, God's work is God's people. Very simply, God's work is always God's people. Now, we certainly see that in Ezra's ministry. Everything he did was for the good of God's people. Even bringing the, the, the vessels that we heard about, the, all the, the gold and silver that was going to be used in the temple, that was still to cultivate and facilitate the worship of God's people at the temple. He gathers people, specific people. He's looking for Levites and temple servants who are going to help God's people worship well. He does all of that for the sake of God's people in Jerusalem. Now, he didn't just, he didn't just like the idea of God's people, God's community. He, he dealt with particular people. We have names in our chapters. We look at the chapter 8. There's the beginning of the chapter. There's a list of names of the people and their families who came with Ezra. Those are particular people that Ezra dealt with. Right after that, we read about Ezra recruiting Levites and temple servants. Again, particular people. He had to call certain people and have them come with him. Later in the same chapter, Ezra appoints the priests to carry the money in the temple vessels. Again, those are specific people he had to manage, he had to lead, he had to encourage and correct. And then he gets to Jerusalem, where he starts teaching the law to the people, and there's all sorts of problems that arise from that. Ezra's work was the people. That's what he did. Because God's work is God's people. If you look at Scripture, 
and you ask yourself, what does God do? What is his work? What is he concerned with? I I don't know if you can challenge this statement that God is concerned with his people. That's what God does. He saves and he builds up. He gathers and he disciplines and he encourages. He teaches, he protects, and he provides for his people. That's God's work. And that is our work. As we think about our own commitments, we have to consider that to be involved in God's work is to be involved with God's people. You've heard pastors say, you may have even heard me say it, for which I apologize. We say ministry is great, right? If it wasn't for the people, it would be greater. If I didn't have to deal with people, this would have been amazing. It's a bad thing to say for a pastor. I don't want to say that. I don't want to laugh when someone else says that. Because our ministry is people. That's, that's what it is. That's all it is. I have, I have a, a, a superintendent that I knew in Chicago who said, I would just love to go to a desert island with just my Bible and nothing else. He said, I'd be so happy just with my Bible nobody else. And I always thought, man, that's kind of weird because God wants us to be with people. I mean, that's he made us to be in community with other people. So for me to isolate myself from people, sure, I'm going to avoid certain problems, certain pain, but I'm also going to miss out on what God does through people. God's work is God's people. He wants us to live in community with others. He wants us to be in the church. And we can't just say I'm part of the church because I'm a believer, I'm part of the universal church. can't say that. It's true, but you can't be part of the universal church unless you know the actual people, unless you're part of the local church, unless you're interacting with other believers. If you read the New Testament, there's, no, there's not even an understanding, there's not even a concept of a solitary believer, of an individual believer by himself, by herself, reading her Bible. That's something we have invented in our culture and at our age. But you look at the Scriptures and you see the command and you see the encouragement, you see the, just the normal reality of a believer interacting with other believers in the church. So as the elders have prayed about the purpose of Chatham in this season of renewal, We all agreed on one simple definition. What I'm saying is not new. It's not something new we're coming up with. We're just clarifying our purpose. What is our purpose? Chatham exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus. Very simple. Jesus commanded us to do that. Any church should have that as their purpose, however we want to phrase it. But our purpose, the reason for our existence as a local church is to make disciples, is to be with people, is to help other people grow. It's for us to be growing ourselves in our walk with Christ together. And so if somebody asked me, or better yet, asked any of you, what is Chatham about? What are you guys about? I would love for us to answer, we're about making disciples. It's very simple. Everything that we do goes under that purpose. We're about helping people grow. 
We're about including people into God's community, so it is evangelism. We're about helping immature young believers grow. We're about teaching each other and teaching others all that Christ has commanded us to obey. We're about raising leaders and sending them out to do God's work outside of our church, as well as raising people for inside of the church to be the next coordinators and small group leaders and elders and deacons. That's what we're about, because God's work is God's people. And if we're not doing that, we're not doing God's work. No matter how many gimmicks we use or how many cool graphics we come up with, how many programs we, we, we do and set up, unless we're dealing with actual people and unless people are actually growing in their walk with Christ, unless we see people come to a relationship with Christ and be growing in it, we're not doing God's work. We're doing something else. So the question for us is, are we committed to God's work, which is God's people? How are you participating in Chatham's purpose of making disciples? We're given many opportunities for you to be involved. Find a way for you to be involved. Are you helping others grow? Let me push you a little bit here. This is perhaps not the right Sunday to do that because people who are here probably are more committed to Chatham than people who aren't on a snowy day. But nonetheless, let me push you. Some of you only come on Sundays and barely interact with other people. You may think that's church. That's not church. You're a spectator. You're an observer. You're a participant from afar. That's not what God wants. God wants to draw you in to be involved in actual relationships, knowing people, many of whom are difficult, relate with people on a personal level, open your life to others, live in real community with others. Now, I'm pushing you to do that because it's biblical, it's right, that's what God wants. But man, is it difficult to do. Yes, it's difficult. When I'm saying this, I'm not saying, why would you not do that? Why are you struggling with that? I understand all of that. It is difficult to form meaningful relationships with other people in the church. We are sinners by nature, and our default mode is either to hide or to pretend everything is fine. And yet the gospel comes into your life and exposes those pharisaical sinful tendencies. The gospel comes in and gives you power to live differently, to live honestly, even if it means being embarrassed. Giving you the power to open your life in front of someone else and for them to open their life in front of you without judgment. Only the gospel can do that. We are not competitors. We're not coming in here thinking, I'm doing better than someone else. I am one of the spiritual giants here at Chatham. We're coming in all broken, all struggling, all trying to apply the gospel to our lives, and we need each other to do that. You just can't succeed as a Christian if you are by yourself. When you read the scriptures, there's not a concept of a solitary Christian. We're all together. So God is working in us and among us to make that a reality. So 
you may be discouraged right now because you feel like I'm trying, I'm seeking that community and it's just not happening. Keep trying, please keep going. Recruit others to help you. If there's a structural problem in the church that needs to change, please talk to me, talk to one of the elders. If we can facilitate community better, we want to do that. We know there's enough obstacles in that pursuit that we shouldn't put, put up any others. So keep trying. Commit to God's work, which is God's people. And finally, the third Ezra's commitment, we'll look at God's commitment after that, but Ezra's final commitment is commitment to God's will. Look with me at Ezra 8, verse 21. I really like this passage. This is a, a pretty high-powered leader who was able to mobilize this large group of people. He's got the king's favor on his side. He has a lot of money that, that he's bringing with him. And yet this is what Ezra does before they depart for Jerusalem. Ezra 8:21. Ezra says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. Ezra led the people in this expression of dependence on God and acceptance of His will. There's real humility here. Something that is lacking in in many of our churches today. Which is probably why we don't fast that much anymore. Ezra fasted. Ezra and the people with him humbled himself and submitted themselves to the will of God. The logic was, if God is with us, then we will make it to Jerusalem just fine. So let's submit ourselves to that will of God. Let's humble ourselves before the God who can control our circumstances. If God is not with us, no amount of military assistance from the king will help us. So let's find out. Let's humble ourselves. Let's fast. Let's pray. Let's implore God. We don't use that language much anymore, right? Let's implore God. Josh, Pastor Josh prayed and he said, I beg God. That's the right language to use. We are beggars before God, of course. Everything depends on Him. We're coming to Him and we are in humility and fasting and in prayer. We say, God, work. God, do what you want to do. Use us. Bring renewal through us. And we see the Spirit clearly in Ezra. Ezra, who was informed by the Scriptures, so he had the right understanding of who God is, how God works. Now he's applying that and he's also teaching it to others as he's modeling this type of prayer by fasting and praying and imploring God to help them on that journey. Now we don't know much about Ezra's life before he returns to Jerusalem. But from what I know from Scripture and experience, Such commitment to God's will, such deep humility, usually develops in suffering. You see, we we don't naturally accept God's sovereignty. This idea that God is in complete control over my life goes against everything that is natural to me in my sinful nature. It's not an idea that I am easily going to accept Somebody comes to an unbeliever or a new believer and says, did you know that God controls everything in your life? 
that God is completely sovereign over everything. Following our natural instincts, we would say, no way this is true. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't feel right to me. Of course it doesn't. But as you read the scriptures, as you experience life with God, as you go through difficult circumstances and you realize that God is sovereign still, you start to warm up to this idea a little bit. And as you get older, you start to really like that idea. You work through those difficulties and you learn to trust Him. You see, we, we need to be convinced that God is sovereign. We need to be trained to trust Him. It doesn't come naturally to us. And so through the suffering, through the long seasons of difficulty in your life and in my life, we learn who God really is and how He works. As a result of that, we humbly submit to His will. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, shows us how it works. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why would you rejoice in your pain? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Okay, that's something I can get on board with. If I'm suffering, I need endurance. And endurance produces character. That's even better. If suffering can make me endure a difficult time and teach me how to do that, how to handle it better, and now my character is affected so that next time that happens, I can do that better. Now let's read on. Character produces hope. Oh, that's, that's even better than character. Now I can suffer with hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now we're getting to God's love in my heart. If I only see suffering, which is all that I see in my immature sinful state, it's very hard to agree that it's a good thing. But as I progress spiritually, as I submit myself to God's will, and I'm starting to see that this suffering is worth rejoicing in because it produces an endurance, that's good. Now this endurance is producing character. Now I am being changed by it into something better. My character is now contributing to the hope that I have, and this hope leads me to focus on God's love that is in my very heart. That's a good thing. Well, how do you learn that? You just have to go through it. And, and yes, the Spirit has to teach you that. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. So if God is to restore a community... We must be humble leaders, people who look to him for protection and provision like Ezra, people who know that his will is perfect, that he can be trusted. Such people are typically those who have suffered deeply. So as you're wrestling with something difficult in your life, and we had a great time of discussing this very topic in our Sunday school class before worship, if you're wrestling with something difficult in your life, this is what you need to see. That suffering produces endurance, that produces character, that produces hope, that focuses you on the love of God. And that you are becoming the kind of person that God can use to bring renewal to some, someone else, to a community, to a church. Unless you suffer, it's very difficult for God to use you. Tozer said that God would not use a man greatly unless he has wounded him deeply. Right? The old quote from Tozer. He's right. 
is right. You look at who God uses. Almost to a person, they've all suffered deeply. They've all been wounded by God, broken by God. So now they're usable. There's a story that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones tells of being at a gathering of ministers in Wales, when he ministered in Wales. And, and Wales, is that, that area of, of Great Britain, is very sensitive to revivals. They had, a, they had great revivals there and, and still remember it. It's been over 100 years. And there's still a memory of, of a revival. They're waiting and praying for another work of God to happen. And so they're always on the lookout for the next leader who might bring a revival to, to Wales. And so Marlon Jones was, was sitting and listening in on a conversation of some of the older ministers. And they're talking about this new guy who seems to be preaching fruitfully and crowds are gathering and people are becoming Christians. And, and they're talking about this, this new preacher who might be the one through whom God will bring revival back to Wales. And... And they're talking about how great he preaches and all the positive traits in his character. And then somebody says, ah, but he's not broken yet. And the conversation stops. Because unless he gets broken, God is not going to use him to bring revival. Finally, we come to God's commitment. Now we've looked at Ezra's commitments to God's word, God's people, God's will. And as evangelical people, we cannot stop here. We simply cannot describe the way we must live without considering the power for such living. We're gospel people, and we know that the gospel brings a totally different perspective on all of this. So I am not here ultimately to push you to try harder, to do better, to resolve, to keep a new set of commitments. That is not my job. Yes, I'd like to look at Ezra, and I'd like to highlight those character traits, those commitments, they're important for us to emulate. But ultimately, my job isn't to convince you to pursue that. My job is to point you to something greater. My job is to point you to something that is underlying those commitments. Something in response to which we can make those commitments ourselves and keep those commitments ourselves. If we simply end the sermon here, and you walk away thinking, I must be more committed to God's Word, I must be more committed to God's people, get more involved in church, I must be more humble before God, all we're going to accomplish is either arrogance, right, self-righteousness, or on the other side, deep despair and guilt. Those are the two ways we can go if we stop here. But if we go deeper, If we look at this passage of Scripture, I'm not even going outside of this passage of Scripture today. If we only look at these two chapters and we ask ourselves, what else is going on here? What is this passage of Scripture pointing to? Is it to the commitments Ezra made? And I would say no. Ultimately, that's not what this passage is about. Very easy to prove my point. You look at chapter 7 and 8, and you see, what is, what is the phrase that keeps coming up again and again and again? Chapter 7, verse 6. The hand of the Lord his God was on him. Chapter 7, verse 9. The good hand of his God was on him. Chapter 7, verse 28. The hand of the Lord my God was on me, Ezra says. Chapter 8, verse 18. 
by the good hand of our God on us. Chapter 8, verse 22. The hand of our God is for the good on all who seek Him. Chapter 8, verse 31. The hand of our God was on us. What's the point of this? Why is all this happening here? Why is Ezra able to make these commitments and to keep them and to be an agent of renewal? It is because God's hand was on him. It's because God's hand is, is, is on God's people. This teaching makes it possible for us to make these commitments and to keep them and to do it joyfully and to recover from failure and still be used by God as agents of renewal. There's an underlying reality of grace here that undergirds all of these commitments, all of these accomplishments, all of these things that happened through Ezra in Jerusalem. The commitment that we are most concerned with is not our commitment to God, as important as it is. It is His commitment to us by grace. Friends, if we get that part... It will work itself out in your life. It will lead you into a deeper saturation with God's Word. Of course it will. If you are so... If your imagination is captured by God's grace, it will inevitably lead you to His book. And you will love His people because He loves His people. And you will humbly submit yourself to God's will because you will know that His will is good. But all of that rests on this idea of grace. That it is God who comes to us. It is God who makes a commitment to us. A commitment to bless us. A commitment to help us. A commitment to save us. There's a fundamental reality of grace in these chapters as in the rest of the scriptures. In order for us to make and keep Ezra-like commitments, we must trust the commitment of God's hand to us. I'm going to finish with focusing on God's hand. Okay, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what his hand is like to lead us into that resting in God's grace. God's hand is a strong hand. You read the Old Testament, there's lots of references to the mighty hand of God, the right hand of God. Ezra 8, verse 31. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. You see, God has committed his power in support of his people. And his hand is stronger than the hand of our enemies. Is that encouraging to you this morning? You may be, you may be in a situation where you look and you say, how can I ever survive the confrontation with these enemies. How can I even make it out alive? So you need to remember that God rules in your life with His mighty hand. That He is stronger than your enemies. That the same mighty right hand of God that created the world, same power in place, the same mighty right hand that brought His people out of slavery in Egypt, that parted the sea, right? That drowned the army of the Pharaoh. That sent all the plagues on, 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 on Egypt. The same hand that rose, that, that raised Jesus from the dead. 
That's the same power that is now committed for your good. God's hand is on his people. And it is God's strong hand. Now secondly, it's God's good hand that's on us. Ezra talks about the good hand of God being on us. Why why does he say that? Well, because it's for our good, like I've talked, because it's for our blessing, for our salvation. But it's not to be assumed that God's hand is for our good. You see, you read the scriptures and you realize that often God's hand is against his enemies. Even Ezra himself, in verse 22, chapter 8, says, The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Both are true. That the power, the power of creation, the power of redemption, the power of the resurrection is directed in support of his people, but it is also directed towards the destruction of the wicked. We need to see these truths in Scripture. We cannot assume, we cannot take it for granted that God is on my side, that God is for me, that God God is going to support me, that God is going to conquer my enemies. It's not something to be taken for granted. And so when we preach, when we try to inspire people to live a better life, we cannot take it for granted that God loves everybody and this inspiration applies to everybody, that God's hand is on everybody. It's not. Only on those who have trusted in Jesus. How do we know God is on my side? We know Him by his pierced hand. Yes, his hand is strong. Yes, his hand is good. But his hand is pierced. And that is why his hand is strong and good in my life. Because it was pierced on the cross. On the cross of Jesus, that beautiful phrase from Isaiah was fulfilled when God engraved our names on the palm of his hand. It happened on the cross when Jesus' hands were pierced by nails. He has forever connected himself to his people. He has forever committed himself to use his power for our good. And when he rose from the dead, this was for our good. That power was used to bring us home. So when I think about these commitments of Ezra's, and I think about commitment to his word and commitment to his work and to his will, I can only understand that in light of God's commitment to me, God's commitment to us, that I ultimately see on the cross of Jesus. I can look at the cross and I can say, I will commit to his word. Why? Because his word is good. How do I know that? From the cross. The God who sacrificed himself for me speaks good words into my life for my good. So I can go into this book and I can rejoice that everything in this book is helpful to me. That everything in this book is right because of the God of the pierced hand. And when I consider his work, when I think about his people, and I think about all the difficulties that are there for me to be in community with others. What motivates me? What motivates me is that God died for this group of people, for this church. 
Jesus died so I could be with you this morning. So he could gather you this morning on the snowy morning to bless you. Because God loves you. I know that from the cross, from the pierced hand of God. And when I think about his will and humbly coming under his will, again I have to look at the cross and I have to think God's hand is on me for my good. Though I may not understand his will, though humility comes hard for me, though the idea of God's sovereignty is a foreign idea to me, I will accept his will humbly because on the cross he has proven to me that there is nothing he's not willing to do to bless me. So that underlying commitment of the gospel, this underlying reality of grace, that's what makes my commitments to him possible. So as you walk away and you think, I need to read my Bible more, yes, you do need to read your Bible more. I need to be more involved in this church. Yes, you do need to be more involved in this church. I need to be more humble before him. I need to fast and pray more. Yes, that's all true. But all of that is only possible if you understand God's commitment to you by grace through Christ if you look at his pierced hand. So as we come to the table, that is exactly that kind of reminder that we need. We come to the table meditating on this underlying reality of grace. Meditating on God's pierced hand that is on me. And so as you come, the question is, is God's hand on you? Are you part of his people? Are you part of his work? And God is speaking to you today. Jesus is speaking to you from the cross, extending his pierced hand to you and saying, in faith come to me, humble yourself before me so I can give you all that I mean to give you. And so will you come today? Come to him in faith, accepting that his strong hand, his good hand, is on you because of his pierced hand on the cross. If you are a believer, you come to the table for encouragement. You come for spiritual nourishment. You come expecting for God to remind you of that grace, to prove to you once again his commitment to you by grace through Christ. We will come forward, take communion here. If you'd like, you can take it here up front and leave the cup in the basket. Or you can take it back to your seats. You're welcome to meditate on the gospel more, to confess your sins, to remind yourself of the grace in Jesus. If you're unable to come forward, an elder will bring it to you. If you're on the balconies, there are tables set up for you there. You're welcome to just come forward where you are and take communion there. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to read the words of the institution that include a warning as well. So if you're a believer, listen to that carefully as well. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are a good God, a strong God, and a gracious God. That as we think about being used by you for renewal and restoration, we know that ultimately it is not we who can measure up to that and work up to that. But it is you who has made a commitment to us so we can work out that grace in our lives through our commitment to your word, through our commitment to your people, through our humble acceptance of your will. 
And so we pray for your Holy Spirit to teach us, to reveal to us that reality of grace, to expose our sin and to apply grace to our hearts. We confess, Lord, humbly and freely that we are sinners. No matter what commitments we keep and make and keep, none of that is ever going to be enough to satisfy your righteous standards. So we already come to you knowing that. We also know that even with all that you've given us, your word, your spirit, your gospel, your people, we still struggle. We still fail so many times. And so we fall in your grace again. And we pray, Lord, that as we confess our sins, that we will experience assurance of your love for us. I pray for those specifically who are suffering, who are going through difficult seasons. I pray that you would show to them that through it your love is being poured into their hearts by your Holy Spirit. That you are making them into agents of renewal. That you are changing their character. That you are teaching them how to be used by you through it. I pray, Lord, for those that may feel guilty this morning. I pray that you would take away that guilt and replace it with encouragement and affirmation through your gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would make us the kind of people you want to use for renewal. May your Holy Spirit do this work and may we be open to his work in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, and in our community. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Lord, we pray that as we examine ourselves, we will experience your forgiveness. We will experience your renewal. Lord, work in our hearts, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.